Welcome to the Tanakh Podcast. Today, Shoftim, Chapter 3. We have finished with the introduction to the book, chapter one, two, and the first few lines of chapter three. And now we move to uh, the first of the Shoftim. We're going to talk about Otniel ben Kanaz, Perak Gimel, Pasuk Zayin, chapter three, verse seven. And here we see all the elements of the cycle. Israel do that which is evil in God's eyes. They forget God. They... Uh, are attached to the, they serve Baal and Asherah, the gods of Canaan. Stage two, Vayichav Arf Hashem Israel. God gets angry with Israel. Vayim Kareim biyad Kushan Rishatayim Melech Aram Naharayim. Vayavdu Bnei Israel at Kushan Rishatayim Shmone Shanim. So we have eight years of servitude to a king from Aram Naharayim, a Mesopotamian king. His name is Kushan Rishatayim. Maybe there's a play on words here. Aram, Aram Naharai means Aram between the two rivers. Kushan Rishatayim is like Kushan, who is a double Russia. He is doubly devastating, doubly evil. Kushan Rishatayim from Aram Naharaim. Somehow at this point, as we find many times in history, the Mesopotamians gain control over the land of Israel for eight years. Stage three of the cycle. The Israelites, they don't do tshuva, but they cry out to God. They're suffering. Stage four. God establishes a savior for B'nai Israel, the Yoshiyim, and he saves them. Who? Otniel ben Kanaz, Kalev hakaton imenu. Otniel, who is Kalev's brother. Some of you might be saying, one second, Kalev is known as Kalev ben Yefuneh. Kalev's father is Yefuneh. And therefore, how can Otniel ben Kanaz be his brother? Well, uh, Kalev is Kalev ben Yifuneh HaKnizi. His family name is Knizi, or that's his Hamula, that's his tribe. So Otniel ben Kanaz, Otniel from the family of Kanaz. Achi Kalev, maybe he's a relative, a cousin, who knows? And the text says here, Vatihi alav ruach Hashem Yisrael. He felt the spirit of God, and he judged Israel. He embarked for war, and God delivered Kushan Rishatayim in his hands. And at the end of the story, So let's deal with the elements here. The phrase, The spirit of God came upon him. What does that mean? And here let me refer to the Rambam in Morenavuchim, in the Guide to the Perplexed where the Rambam lists several levels of prophecy. If I'm not mistaken, it's 12 levels of prophecy, each one higher than the next. However, the first degree of prophecy, we might not call prophecy at all. I quote from the translation of Guide to Perplexed. It was written in Arabic. It, is di- it consists of the first degree of prophecy consists in divine assistance, which is given to a person and induces or encourages them to do something good and grand, for example, to deliver a congregation of of tzaddikim from the hands of rasha'im, or to save one tzaddik, or to bring happiness to a large number of people. And 
He finds within himself the cause that moves and urges him to this deed, and the degree of divine influence is called Ruach Hashem. And of the person who is under that influence, we say that the Spirit of God came upon him and clothed him or rested upon him. And all the judges of Israel possess this degree, for the following general statement is made concerning them. In chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord's raised judges for them, and the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them. And within this context, they quote this very verse about Otniel ben Kanaz. Indeed, they say, this faculty was also possessed, this faculty was also possessed by Moshe, Moses. I call it a confidence, a sense of motivation, which a calling, which and a sense of, 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 of get up and go, a sense of leadership, which enables them to lead. Where does that come from? Most people just, you know, bear the load. Most people don't respond. That leadership, that sense of motivation, that outrage, which leads them the confidence to lead is called Vatihi Alav Ruach Hashem. It's very interesting because it's not something spiritual. It's You're not getting messages from God. But that impetus is that. Last point. Vatishkot Aretz Arba'im Shana. The land was quiet for 40 years. In the next story, the land was quiet for 80 years. And at the end of the Devorah story, the land was quiet for 40 years. Uh, are these real numbers or are these uh, rounded numbers? This is actually an argument between two of my teachers. Rav Yaakov Maidan says that these are form numbers, that frequently the uh, notion of 40 years is sort of like a representative of a classic period, a generation. It's not really a, a, a precise year. My other teacher, David Nativ, responded one second, but it says that King David was king for 40 years, King Solomon was king for 40 years. Are we saying that really it was 37, 36, 45? And it's just rounded down. He thinks that it's really 40 years. But let me say something about this. First of all, that quiet is a deceptive quiet. Because it's quiet. And we would expect to be proactive. And to try and preempt the next war. And to defend ourselves. But that quiet lulls us into a sense of complacency. And we do nothing. The second thing is. But if you if you count up all the different years, for example, here, eight years of occupation and another 40 years of quiet. And then in the next story of Ehud ben Gera, 18 years and another 80. And you count it all up. We get to something like out of the whole book, we get up to 410 years. Now, it's virtually impossible that the period of the Shoftim uh, extended for 410 years. We know that there were 480 years from the Exodus to the building of the temple. And if that's true, and you take off 40 for the wilderness, and about 30 for the generation of Joshua, and 40 for the generation of David, we're nowhere near. Um, the, the likelihood is that many of these periods of 40 years, 80 years, and what have you, overlapped. And that the uh, different uh, shoftim were in simultaneously, we're in overlapping uh, cycles in the north, in the south, etc., etc. So when it says Vatishkota Aretz, on the Elben Kanaz comes from Yehuda, it means Eretz Yehuda was quiet for the next 40 years, but uh, it might well be that already trouble was brewing in other parts of the country.
The next story is the story of Ehud ben Gera from Binyamin. Binyamin, the son of my right hand, who Ehud is going to be left-handed, and that's going to be the key to the victory. This is going to be the story of the perfect murder. The enemy here is Eglon Melech Moab, Moab on the other side of the Dead Sea. They invade the land of Israel. They uh, take the area of Irhatzmarim, which is Jericho, and even areas of Har Ephraim, it would see, up into the hills. And they have even 10,000 troops stationed across the Jordan, so it would seem. And uh, they bring along with them Ammon and Amalek, uh, sort of very resonant names, in order to help them fight the Israelites. 18 years Israel is occupied by this group until the day of the subterfuge, the perfect murder, where Ehud ben Gera ben Yemini, the Benjaminite, Ish Iter Yad Yemino, notice the stress on the word Yad, the left handed, is sent by Ishlachuban Israel, Biyado Minchale Eglon Melech Moav. Ehud brings in his hand a tribute, probably the tax money, to Eglon, and he acts as if he is totally loyal, and even though he has this very, very tiny dagger, a double-sided dagger, which again seems that it won't really do the trick, because in the very next verse, we're told that Eglon, Eglon almost sounds like a, a fat calf, Ishbari Maod, he's very healthy, meaning he's very fat, and therefore, if you stab him with a very small knife, um, how's that going to help? But everything is perfectly orchestrated. Ehud goes with the entire national delegation, makes sure they get back over the border, and at the key moment says to the king, I have something private to say to you, a message from God. And the king stands in order to hear this message. And by standing, um, Ehud quickly unsheathes with his left hand his dagger and plunges it into the stomach. Sorry to be so... Uh, crude and gross, but the little dagger goes straight into his stomach so much that it penetrates his internal organs, but ha allows no blood to uh, come out. And therefore, Ehud has time to get away because nobody realizes that the king is dead. They think he's just in the bathroom, taking his time. And Ehud gets over the uh, border in time to blow the shofar, stage the rebellion. They cut off the crossing points of the Jordan River and trap the enemy on the western side of the Jordan and thereby they win the day. They win the day again. Again, the, the emphasis of the of the hand. He stand, he uh, calls, blows the chauffeur and says, um, Come, go after me. God has delivered your enemies, Moab, in your hands. And the story ends with Moab on that day is subdued under the hand of Israel. Is it the hand of Israel? Is it the hand of Ehud? Or is it the hand of God? Just like there is a double-edged sword, there is a double-edged piece, not 40 years, but 80 years. That's the end of chapter three. See you tomorrow for the story of Devorah, Barak and Yael.